Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson. Together with me today, I'm really pleased that we've got Ben Nabarro, who's Chief UK Economist at City, and Carl Emerson, who is Deputy Director here at the IFS. And today we're talking about our analysis of the economy and the public finances, which we publish annually in our so-called green budget. In other words, uh, the work that we do advising the government on the state of the public finances and their policy options open to them, usually before uh, a budget, this time as it turns out after a mini budget, but before a fiscal statement, which we're now expecting on the 31st of October. I should say that the Green Budget this year, as it has been for a number of years, is uh, generously supported by the Nuffield Foundation. So thank you very much to them for the incredibly valuable support that they give to us to allow us to put this kind of work into the public domain. It's been obviously an extraordinary uh, few weeks in the fiscal and economic world. Um, Not so long since Mr. Kwarteng's not-so-mini budget uh, unleashed £43 billion worth of tax cuts, which themselves have unleashed a remarkable degree of instability in the financial market. So fantastic moment to sit back and Think about what the consequences of all that has been, what might happen to the economy over the next few years, and what the consequences of that might be for the public spending and tax options that the Chancellor has opened to him. But let's start, um, Ben Demaro, with, um, with, with just a question about what happened on uh, the day of that mini-budget. Um, we had those tax cuts, most of which were entirely expected. They were very much in Liz Truss's manifesto. But the market seemed to not take it terribly well. No, um, absolutely not. I, I think um, to understand the reaction that came on that particular Friday, which I, I broadly share your view, Paul, will, I think, be a day that rec- uh, that sort of carries with it an ignominious tone for, for quite some years. I think you have to understand what was going on bef- in the weeks building up to it. Uh, because we had seen, you know, many parts of the um, pension sector that I think have since been exposed as having some structural issues. We had been seeing them consistently selling, so there had been a almost a, an ember um, or signs of of challenges there as gilt yields had come under some upward pressure as the Bank of England had become more and more hawkish. And then I think on the day itself, the reason, and you're right to say that the policies themselves were quite well and anticipated, and of course they were, with potentially the exception of the abolition of the additional rate of income tax. But I think what happened was the market, having already sort of seen this structural vulnerability and already been quite concerned about who exactly was going to buy or fund all of this further fiscal expansion, I think it came to a broader realisation, not so much about the overall size of the package per se, which was quite well understood, but quite how sharply um, this contrasted with the aims of the Bank of England. So you got very acute and clear-cut policy contradiction in the UK. And I think with respect to the fiscal package itself, what took markets by surprise was, I mean, there was this recognition that there was going to be this widespread offset to energy. Now, 
that's a you know a, a reasonable approach to take in and of itself but potentially the the scope or the degree to which it was offset you know didn't seem to take demand destruction or adjustment particularly seriously so at the very least it was a big risk on gas prices coming down but i think what then came on top of that was this sense in which the government wasn't really trying to offer targeted income support but was genuinely trying to stimulate demand during this period where inflation um, and um, when inflation and arguably demand relative to at least impaired to supply was already running quite hot. So I think there was this sense of just the market or fiscal policy alongside the fact it wasn't accompanied by any forecasts had just lost any kind of anchor and any kind of um, awareness of the economic context in which it was operating. So that's, I think, one way of saying Chancellor seemed to have Taken a punt, not really. Didn't appear, and and, and the way he, he the way he presented the, the the fiscal statement, he didn't really appear to be that concerned about fiscal sustainability or the consequences of it. So one senses that the tone even may have mattered. I mean, one of the things you said there, Ben, which you make quite a lot of in the in 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 the, in the work that you've written for the, the the green budget, is that you've got this conflict, as it were, between monetary policy, the Bank of England putting interest rates up and trying to get inflation under control, and fiscal policy, the government looking like it's actually trying to stimulate demand, and those are running in opposite directions. Um, could you just take us through why, why, is that, why is that, or why is that perceived to be such a problem? That's a very good question. I mean, and I think, you know, it's fair to say that in certain contexts, um, monetary and Fiscal policy, as you know, listeners will know, often works in slightly different ways. So sometimes there can be complements between them. Um, but the issue today is, you know, we're running in a context where you know the Bank of England is working desperately hard, not just to bring or try and reduce the risk of a de-anchoring, um, but it's doing so in a context which is extremely uncertain. And you have fiscal policy that um, is, you know, as you described, trying to, you know, is injecting more demand into the economy and doing so at scale. Now, why is that a problem? Um, I mean, it can be a problem for a range of different ways. I mean, the most obvious implication is that as we stand today, it now falls to the Bank of England alone to try and reaffirm any sense of sort of economic credibility for the UK as a whole. And in the UK, that's especially important given the size of the current account deficit. So all of that burden now falls to interest rates. And the difficulty, as we write in the in the chapter, is that Given the context in which we start, so the level of uncertainty, the existing concerns around UK institutional credibility, the bank is forced to be especially aggressive in contradicting some of that fiscal stimulus because, you know, the the risk around economic or inflation de-anchoring is one that's immediate and monetary policy traditionally operates with quite a long lag. So given those immediate concerns, the bank is effectively forced not just to offset the fiscal policy, but is in many ways forced to be much more aggressive to send that kind of clear signal. And the difficulty is given where we are, you know, that will imply yeah, if it, the profile we have for growth in the green budget is one where it's, you know, growth is arguably or the contraction is not quite as deep as some elsewhere in Europe next year, but is deeper in 2024. And that's really reflecting the sense of the bank having to really overshoot and ultimately drive down potential in the medium term. So the problem is in, you know, really that sense of just how challenging the monetary policy context was to begin with and the sense in which the bank, as a result, is forced to really overcompensate. 
effectively what the Chancellor's doing is forcing the bank to increase interest rates more than it otherwise would have done, and that's going to have long-term or medium-term negative consequences for the economy. Let's come back in a minute to the your economic forecast, which is in a sense going to be the centre of what we're talking about, and come to Carl to talk about this issue of interest rates and the impact that this uh, these rising interest rates are having on the Treasury, because we've got a sort of almost a, a cascade effect, haven't we? We've got the the, the Treasury or the, the, the Chancellor announces tax cuts. That's resulted in an increase in the cost of government um, debt and will result in higher interest rates from the Bank of England. And that in itself, Carl, is going to result in more problems for the Chancellor. It's a risk that we're particularly exposed to now as well. So if the government borrows more money, um, if the Bank of England starts putting up interest rates, what you find now is that the cost of debt interest rises and rises pretty sharply. And that's a combination of us having quite a lot of debt. We've accumulated a lot of debt through the financial crisis, through uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, all for very good reasons. But if you've got more debt, you're more exposed to these costs. And also, something we've discussed a while ago on this podcast, the government isn't borrowing effectively on at the long, at long-term fixed-in rates. It's borrowing at the contemporaneous rate that's set by the Bank of England on a large share of its debt, because that's the way in which uh, quantitative easing uh, works in the UK. So what that means is that when bank rate goes up, the government immediately sees some of its debt interest costs go up. Now, if that was all happening in a world because everyone was agreeing that there was much, much stronger growth prospects for the UK, you wouldn't be so worried. You'd see, oh, we're spending more on debt interest, but we've got a lot more GDP. That's going to deliver a lot more tax revenues um, and all is fine for the public finances. But because we're not in that world, what we're experiencing is high inflation pushing up the index-linked part of the government's debt. We're seeing these rising bank rate and expectations of rising bank rate pushing up the bit that's financed um, through or the, bit, the, the bonds that are held through the, through the Bank of England, uh, the cost of those going up. And that's adding considerably to the debt interest bill. And in the forecast we put out in the Green Budget, we think that uh, in the coming financial year, we're going to be spending about £100 billion on debt interest. That'll be twice what the official forecast from last March um, suggested. So that's a huge additional sum. Now, fortunately, most of that is expected to be a temporary increase, a blip, um, and will settle down. It will come back to closer to normal levels, but still be running some way above. So even in the middle of this decade, we think that debt interest spending will be running something like um, £18 billion a year ahead of what was expected back in March. That's a considerable increase, and it essentially means that whoever's chancellor at the time um, is going to have harder decisions on tax or spending to make because of that borrowing. And this is why, I mean, this is one of the reasons why, in a sense, we're always banging on about fiscal policy and fiscal sustainability, because um, it, it might look like a free lunch in the short run to be borrowing money, but you do end up having to pay for it and uh, pay for it in terms of the higher interest payments that uh, you're making. So if we are in the medium run, um, and I think we're looking at something like £70 billion a year of debt interest in the um, in the mid-2020s, that's essentially the whole education budget um, equivalent to, and the additional £18 billion is equivalent to a couple of 2 or 3p on income tax. So these are substantial uh, sums of money. And I think I'd distinguish there between 
borrowing that the government might be doing because of some temporary problem. I mean, I think it's pretty well agreed that when a financial crisis, when a pandemic, or even you know, when this winter's cost of living crisis hits, that borrowing a lot of money to help people through those times can be completely the right thing to do. So running up debt in those periods, but that means that you need to run the debt down in other periods. So you've got scope to do it. So, Ben, we've talked a, a fair bit about what's happened over the last couple of weeks and, 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 the, and then about the consequences for interest payments. But what about the, the health of the economy more broadly? Um, the Prime Minister has made it clear that she's in favour of growth growth, and more growth, um, and aren't we all? But are we going to get a lot of growth over the next few years? I think, as you put it, Paul, on the day, I mean, one certainly hopes so. But I think as we, you know, as we sit and discuss today, it's, it's hard to see. Um, unfortunately, and I, I don't mean to consign myself to the other um, sort of raft of gloomsters and doomsters, as Boris Johnson put it. Um, but I mean, look, the, you know, the UK has been a laggard in its recovery from from COVID. Um, we've known this for some time, and there's been a discussion about you know measuring of public sector output, so on and so forth. But I think, you know, the UK is now the only economy in the G7, at least as it stood in in the second quarter of this year, not to recovered. To have recovered to its pre-pandemic level, um, and I think yeah, in the years ahead, um, it feels to us, at least in the near term, that the terms of trade shock that is impact impacting the rest of Europe will also hit the UK economy. Perhaps you'd explain terms of trade shock. Yes, yeah, sorry. So the um, the terms of trade is the um, ratio between the cost of or the price of your exports versus what you import. So when that terms of trade falls. And that reflects an overall loss of economic competitiveness. And that's the main economic implication of particularly the increase in energy prices, given the UK is a net energy importer. But the reason why these effects are relatively severe in the UK is, th is that we're, of course, also a large importer of things like food and consumer goods, even more so than continental Europe, which means this, this hit is, um, is unfortunately particularly large. So when you combine that with the I would say slightly unconventional and suboptimal policy mix that we were discussing previously. I think, unfortunately, we're left with the conclusion that the UK is set with a relatively difficult few years. Um, of course, if gas prices come down, if that fundamental supply picture improves, we could end up with two and a half percent growth in 2024, quite quite plausibly. Um, but that won't necessarily be because of domestic economic policy. It will be because of luck. And I don't necessarily think it's wise or prudent to make policy judgments today on a, on a hope or a prayer. I think in the medium term and in the longer term, the question about how to generate better medium term growth outcomes is absolutely key for the UK. Um, clearly, we've been in this decade, which has been amongst the weakest from a growth perspective in 200 years. Nicholas Kraft's work has been brilliant on that. Um, but I think that requires very careful, targeted thoughtful policy, I don't really see a good argument to think that, for example, um, cuts in corporation tax, at least on a headline basis, or um, cuts in income tax necessarily deliver a meaningful supply improvement. Instead, I think what's more important are things like proper investment incentives. Investment remains one of the key weak points of the UK post-COVID recovery. Um, and also actually finding ways of replacing the economic openness that we've lost as a result of our exit from the European Union. Because historically, that's had a very strong impact on UK growth. And I do worry that having now exited 
you know, that medium term productivity hit will and I think is turning out to be really quite severe. So we need to find new ways of engendering the kind of productivity boost that we've arguably lost. And from recollection, what you're actually projecting over the next five years is average annual growth of only about 0.8%. Is that right? That's right, yes. I mean, that's dreadful by historical standards. It is. It is. Um, And I think, you know, given where we stand in terms of our fiscal position and so on, that should be a concern to everyone. You know, that matters in terms of um, not just in terms of living standards, but in terms of that medium term policy credibility question that we started with from a policy perspective as well. The one other I mean, factor I would cite, and Carl referenced it in his comments with respect to, you know, how you prudently manage the public finances through crises, is what we've seen in the last few years is a succession of very large supply shocks. And one of the things we argue in the chapter, Paul, as you know, is if we are going to lift that medium term rate of productivity growth, we need to find a much more effective policy strategy to deal with these kind of shocks. Because unfortunately, with the gas shock and to some degree with COVID, you know, while it's important to support incomes in a targeted way, if we're seeing more permanent reconfiguration as a result of these effects, simply bridging the economy over the disruption merely defers the pain rather than solves it. So we have to think a bit differently about that. So your 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 central forecast is a pretty gloomy 0.8% a year. Now you've told us that things could turn out better because um, gas prices might come down. And and p- part of the reason why we're getting gloomy growth on average is, as you said, energy has become more expensive, food's become more expensive, we're a net importer, that's going to make us poorer. And um, you know, that's, uh, that, that's, that's bad news, to put it mildly. That could come off very quickly. So an upside forecast would say, well, look, energy prices really come down and we'll grow more. But is 0.8 a year as gloomy as it gets, or could it be worse? I think it, it could well be worse. Um, unfortunately, uh, the two scenarios, um, you know, that at least worry me and one of which definitely keeps me awake at night is, you know, first, if we do see uh, more embedded inflation. So one of the exercises we do in the chapter, for example, is to take um, inflation dynamics as they materialized before um, the advent of inflation targeting. So pre-1992 and look at what that would mean in terms of monetary policy and subsequently for the wider economy, if we had to re-anchor inflation from using those kind of dynamics. So if we saw a similar price shock, but because everything's slightly less well anchored, that feeds across the broader matrix of domestic prices and monetary policy really has to generate a recession in order to pull, um, to, to, to sort of pull everything back into line with the 2% target. And what we find is that would require, for example, you know, a much deeper 5 6% recession peaked trough, unemployment of 8%. So that would be enormously painful. And it's a very good reason why I think the bank has taken a proactive approach, given the context in which it's in, and also why, you know, it's particularly, um, one should be particularly careful about doing any further demand stimulus in current circumstances, because you may not do enough to change the growth outlook, but you, you may still, what you do may be sufficient to change the inflation dynamics, and that can be very costly. The other scenario would be one where, or really pessimistic scenario, would be one where um, you see that embedded inflation begin to emerge, but for whatever reason, the Bank of England doesn't do what's necessary in terms of driving up rates, weighing on growth, and pulling inflation back down. 
the difficulty for the UK is given it's a large dual deficit economy, so it has both a large fiscal deficit and a large current account deficit. Current account deficit being a balance of trade deficit. Exactly. And so depends on foreign capital. If the bank doesn't keep long-term inflation expectations well anchored, then what will happen is um, foreign um, investors will demand much higher interest rates in order to continue investing in the UK. And that will generate a much nastier sort of tightening of financial conditions domestically. So that's a much much nastier financial and economic crunch. And both of those, unfortunately, I mean, I really hope no policymaker in the UK takes the third seriously or would want to let that happen. But we have to think of both as at least plausible from over the next few years. And both would imply much deeper recessions than the relatively shallow one we forecast as a baseline. Well, I'm not going to press you any further because you're getting more and more depressing and pessimistic as we as as we go through this. But I think the I think the key message to get across here is that something good might turn up relative to your central forecast, but there are significant risks on the downside, and that begins to look really quite unpleasant. And you know, the, the 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 message to the chancellor has to be: don't plan on the assumption that things will turn out a lot better. Uh, than the the central um, central scenario because they might not and indeed they might turn out worse. Um, that Carl. Um, so Ben has laid out the sort of the economic um, forecasts, um, acknowledging of course the uncertainty around those. Um, that obviously has immediate consequences for the fiscal forecasts and the extent to which the uh, tax and spending plans are on a sustainable. Basis. So, what 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 were the conclusions um, of your work on it, where, whether we have a sustainable fiscal policy if we carry on as we are, given these rather gloomy economic prognoses? Well, the starting point for our analysis was to look back to the official forecasts that the Office for Budget Responsibility produced in March, and they said that the government policy was set with just about enough to have debt falling as a share of national income in the medium term, um, a margin of error of about £30 billion, which sounds like a, a big number, but really isn't in the context of the kind of numbers we're dealing with here. As Ben says, we've now had the outlook for the economy clearly worsened since March. We, you know, Quantifying that is clearly difficult, but it's pretty obvious that the outlook for the economy has got worse because of Russia's invasion um, of Ukraine and the subsequent shocked energy prices. And on in an addition, we've had uh, the new government, the new chancellor announced big package of permanent tax cuts um, worth £43 billion a year, um, plus a short-term package of support that's going to provide a lot of help to households and to non-domestic users of energy over the next, over this coming winter and, and beyond. So it's pretty clear we're going to be borrowing a lot more money, and it's pretty clear we're borrowing more, not just through the two years where that energy price guarantee is in place, but also borrowing more beyond that, simply because of those permanent tax cuts combined with the worse economic outlook. So there's lots of uncertainty around exactly how much more money we'll be borrowing, but we think that uh, even once we get to the middle of this decade and the energy price guarantee is touch wood long behind us, the deficit could still be running at about £100 billion per year. That's the gap between what the government's spending and what it's collecting in revenues. And that's um, getting on for £70 billion higher than what the forecast was as of March. That's a considerable increase in the outlook for borrowing in just a six-month period. And as I say, £43 billion of that increase is, is fairly certain because it's the cost of the 
the tax cuts, the, the decision to get rid of the health and social care levy, the decision not to go ahead with a big increase in corporation te- tax rise next April, the decision to cut stamp duty, and a few others too. But isn't all that inflation bringing more money in, both because if prices are higher, earnings are higher, so income taxes are higher, VAT is higher, and uh, in addition, as we've pointed out, um, with the freezing of all of the income tax allowances and thresholds over the next few years, that's quite a big tax increase. Um, so how, how does the how does the revenue side of this play out? So the revenue side will depend, as you say, on cash incomes, cash spending, cash profits. That's what we tax. Um, they'll be depressed by the weaker real outlook for the economy, such as those suggested by uh, cities forecast, but they will also be boosted by the fact that inflation is set to be higher. People are, uh, workers are getting bigger pay rises than what was expected back in March. Uh, people will, in cash terms, be spending more on goods and services. And those two effects, they're both really uncertain, but they might roughly be offsetting. So you end up where, roughly where you were on revenues on our forecast. But I would, I would stress there's a lot of uncertainty around that. It could be that revenues come in stronger than March. It could be they come in considerably weaker. Um, which then leaves us with just the, the tax cuts to price in, which are an unambiguous reduction in how much revenue we expect to get in the medium term. Even if even if those tax cuts do generate a bit more growth, uh, they will not be paying for themselves. So in, um, in, in revenue terms, um, a bit more inflation and a bit less growth doesn't sound so bad. The problem is on the spending side, first, that a bit more inflation means more spending on pensions and welfare benefits and so on. But it also means if we stick to the current uh, set of spending plans for public services, for health and education, they're just worth less uh, into the future. A year ago, uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak set out their spending review. Um, They used forecasts for inflation they had at the time, and they were planning uh, real increases in spending in a lot of areas, health and social care, but also across large parts of um, government. With the latest inflation forecast, plus the the government claiming it's going to keep to those cash limits, it's not going to revise them, it does imply that the the real increases, they're still on average an increase, but those real increases will be much, much less generous. The the average growth rate is about half what was expected um, a year ago. So it's imposing, relative to the plans that were in place a year ago, uh, essentially real cuts on departments relative to those previous plans. And it's imposing it in a slightly arbitrary way because spending departments which are perhaps more exposed to increases in wages where the public sector pay deals are coming in higher, public services that are more exposed to rising energy costs, and public services like defence, which tend to buy quite a lot of stuff that's priced in dollars, will be experiencing a bigger squeeze relative to other parts um, of government. So I think there would have been a case for reopening the spending settlements, even if you were going to keep to the same totals, just to say that actually in the light of this shock, we want to reallocate money around a little bit. Hmm. It doesn't look like we're going to get anything quite so rational as a process, uh, at least in the... um at least in the immediate, um, at least in the immediate term. So, um, put all of that together. Um, how, how does the how does the chancellor get to something which looks like a fiscally sustainable outcome? In other words, an outcome where he can stand up on the thirty first of October and say, "I have a set of plans which will mean that three years out, or perhaps five years out, debt is at worst intended to be stable as a fraction of national income and not." rising as a fraction of national incomes. I think what you're saying is on current policies, debt will just be on its merry way ever upwards. On our central forecast, debt does continue to rise um, 
to rise faster than GDP. So that ratio is increasing throughout the next five uh, years, which is problematic because we we do need to be trying to bring that down in in years outside of crises so we can allow it to go back up when bad shocks hit. Um, the Chancellor has, well, in fact, there's some legislation saying that he has to aim to get it down um, on a path so it'll be falling in three years' time. I think quite clearly we're not going to achieve that and we'll simply just change that rule again. Making Aiming for five years rather than three um, would be less ambitious. It gives him some advantages. It would mean more time for any higher growth to feed through. It would mean more time for any squeeze to public spending to work its way through. Um, But it probably still won't be enough. Um, Higher growth will be great, but I can't see the official forecaster just accepting a promise that reforms will come and that they will generate higher growth. I think that would be very unlikely. And indeed, the whole point of having Uh, independent experts producing the government's economic and fiscal forecasts is to stop them incorporating what we've described as politically motivated wishful thinking into those forecasts. So I I would be recommending not to be revising up uh, the sustainable level of UK GDP growth at this point. So that leaves the Chancellor with um, some pretty hard choices. If we assume that he doesn't want to start reversing those tax cuts, if he doesn't want to be putting up taxes elsewhere because he wants to remain a chancellor that's looking to lower taxes where he can, that says he's going to have to put more of a squeeze on spending. Um, I think it's pretty clear that taking money out of the NHS will be very tricky. I think no government finds that easy, but the NHS at the moment particularly struggling. Um, Recent governments have also tended not to be uh, keen on cutting the incomes or or being less generous than previous promises um, for pensioners, um, with the triple lock, for example, being something that Liz Truss has again said that she remains committed to. So those two big areas of spending look like they'll be uh, protected from any squeeze, which makes the, the the sort of decisions for other parts of government really very, very hard. And you'd have to make some really quite tricky decisions to areas such as benefits paid to working age people, uh, the plans perhaps for investment spending that the government does, which could be trimmed back, but wouldn't seem like the most growth-friendly cut you could do, um, or, or day-to-day spending on other public services, um, which are exactly the areas where um, there's been pretty deep cuts through the 2010s. So it'll be services, one presumes, like law and order, prisons, local government services that would bear the brunt, particularly as the Prime Minister has said that she's very keen on a very large increase in um, defense spending. So I think I think it looks very difficult to make the sums add up over the next few years in a in a credible way. So Ben, that all sounds quite um, quite difficult. We know the Chancellor is going to stand up on the thirty first of October and say something. Um, from what Carl's saying, it's going to be quite hard for him to say something which is really very credible in the sense of saying we're really going to be getting debt the debt down over even a five year horizon. How, how much is that going to matter at this stage? Have the markets now corrected after the, or corrected or got a new, found a new place after the mini budget or could they be spooked again? They can always be spooked again, so never say never. Um, I think one certainly hopes that the scale of reaction we saw after the mini budget may not be repeated and certainly if we were to see some kind of retrenchment um, on spending um, or plans to do so, that's conceivable that maybe it'd be slightly more muted. 
I think the question is, you know, you said, as you said it, Paul, you know, have they have, is there a new equilibrium beginning to emerge in the pricing of these things? I don't think we're there yet in terms of finding a level or roughly getting any sense of, of stability um, yet. And I think the, you know, the difficulty, if we're going back to the more fundamental policy issue here, is not necessarily about um, issuance in a direct sense in the medium term. You know, providing a plan, a bit of clarity about what the government intends to do in the medium term would, of course, be helpful in terms of addressing some of those credibility concerns. Now, I take both yours and, and Carl's, particularly Carl's points about whether you can really think of that as credible. And of course, we've been here so many times where the government's promising some kind of fiscal retrenchment three, four years out that never materializes. So I think markets will or you know generally one would be a little bit skeptical about about those sorts of promises but the deeper issue in the very near term is you know you you still have monetary and fiscal policy pulling in opposite directions and unless you see a core reversal of some of those tax cutting plans it's very e difficult to see how you know we could see a meaningful return to stability um, because, of course, what's really driving this, certainly what has been in recent weeks, is less sort of long-term concerns in a direct sense, but more just, you know, the um, what's described as the short end of the UK curve, so pricing for bank rate, increasing very, very significantly. And that inevitably has ramifications across the matrix of interest rates thereafter. So unless you see that fundamental contradiction change or that fundamental conflict, it's quite hard to see things getting meaningfully better even if maybe they, as you put it, don't necessarily get worse worse still. <laughs> well, let, let, let's let's end up on that, um, I mean, what you described as the matrix of interest rates. I mean, what's this going to mean for households in the short run? I and mean, we've got a lot of things going on. In one sense, the labour market looks great. I mean, there's more jobs than ever, um, uh, but wages aren't going up in line with prices. People with mortgages look like they might be struggling. What's your, what's your sense of once we kind of, bring ourselves down from the sort of abstractions of the public finances and, and, and GDP growth? What, what's going to be happening to households over the next couple of years? It's a very, very good question. Um, I think, unfortunately, the truth is the picture still looks, from my perspective, very challenging. You know, of course, the cap on household energy bills helps very significantly. I mean, that had looked, um, frankly, very, very scary when we were in over the high summer and we were looking at bills conceivably of five and a half, six thousand pounds. Um, I think that would, would have resulted in widespread destitution. So I think the government has been right to say something um, had to be done. However, um, energy is just, you know, going back to the macroeconomics of this, you know, energy is just one of the shocks coming through for households. Food inflation, for example, is running very, very hot. Um, in other areas... I think it, you said food inflation might hit 17%. Yeah, so it could peak at 17% in Q1. Um, across the board, you're looking at large increases. And, you know, one of the key dimensions of the forecast, as you referenced, was... You know, for the next six months, those price increases are the primary driver behind a, a pretty weak uh, consumption outlook. But then it quite quickly transitions into mortgage costs. And yeah, I don't think we should lose any sense of perspective here. The Bank of England has engaged in the fastest monetary policy tightening, you know, certainly since independence and really for a long time before that. And our expectation um, is that there will be quite a lot more to come. Markets are even more aggressive than, than we are.
So you're looking at a situation where, you know, for a mortgaged household, you could quite conceivably see their two-year fixed rate mortgage cost, you know, that increase by about £8,000 when they're forced to refinance for the median uh, UK mortgage mortgaged household, which for context is about 30% of the total. Um, and I think that's clearly going to be very, very difficult. You know, we, the UK has seen this move from floating to fixed rate mortgages over the last um, five, six years or so. That does offer some immediate, uh, some immediate insulation. But it's still true to say the majority of UK mortgage lending is um, lent at less than five years, and, and a very large portion of it is 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 financed at two years. And what we've been working through over the last few months is a sort of echo of the gully in the housing market we saw after the initial period of the pandemic. An awful lot of people need to refinance their mortgage over the next six to 12 months. And I think that's going to be another very significant headwind uh, for the economic outlook as we as we move into that period. And Carla, last word from you also on this issue of um, household finances. I think one of the, it, it, what, what Ben's saying is quite worrying, given what might happen over the next year or two. But um, but it it comes off the back, doesn't it, of a long period of stagnation in incomes and earnings. It does, and in some sense, both in terms of public services and in terms of household incomes, it's really not a good time to have another adverse shock. Um, the financial crisis, the pandemic, and now this cost of living crisis uh, stemming from what's happening in Ukraine is all causing a lot of difficulties for households. And we don't enter this with um, either a decade of growth behind us um, in household incomes or a decade of large increases in spending on many public services where you might say, well, actually, if households were to see their incomes drop, they'd still be higher than they were a few years ago. If you were to cut a bit out of some public spending, it would still be spending more than it was a few years ago. That's not the world we're in. And so, for example, the, the public sector pay settlements that are currently being made imply a real drop in the earnings of public sector workers, but of course, private sector workers are also seeing their wages drop in real terms. But the big difference there is that the public sector has as a whole seen their wages drop on average over the whole of the last um, 10 years. Um, so it, that's just one example of where um, you know some, some, some difficulties over the next couple of years follow a very challenging period. Well, look, we should probably stop there before we all depress ourselves into an early grave. Um, uh, th- it hasn't been the cheeriest of um, podcasts, uh, I- I'm afraid. Um, we've we've had um, Ben Nabarro, um take us through the consequences of the Chancellor's mini-budget of a couple of weeks ago, and more importantly, setting out a set of economic forecasts which really don't look very positive, less than 1% growth a year over the next five years by his central um, estimates. It shouldn't amaze us, though, because we have been made worse off by this huge increase in energy prices, food prices, and other uh, imported uh, prices. And the economy's already not doing terribly well. And then Carl has taken us through the consequences of that uh, for the public um, finances and the the huge difficulty that the Chancellor is actually going to face in persuading us that he's got a route towards fiscal sustainability in the face of his own tax cuts and this poor economic growth. Well, we will find out more about that um, on the 31st of October and exactly how Mr. Kwarteng is going to find a way to square the circle. Um, uh, But for now, uh, we will sign out. Thank you very much uh, for listening to this edition of the IFS 
zooms in. To see more of our work, visit www.ifs.org.uk. And if you want to support our work, please do consider becoming a supporter of the IFS for as little as £5 a month. You can find more information in the episode description. See you next time.